Hello, this is Zach Phillips. If you're new to this series, welcome. I recommend you go back and listen to the first episode, where we met Ricky Reyes. One of the other people we met was Charlie Copeland, which is a name that a few of you might recognize. And so you said you're the chairman of... The Delaware Republican Party. Does that make you the head of the Delaware Republican Party? It is a voluntary position, but yes, I am the, 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 the head of the Delaware Republican Party. And that and $1.09 will get you a, a cup of coffee at, I think, most of the Wawa's in the area. Everybody I've, I've spoken to about the juvenile justice issue so far has been, you know, pretty liberal. Your uh, folks. Yes, my people. <laughs> um, but I, I really, And that's okay, because that doesn't mean my people are right. <laughs> Charlie got active in politics during a time when the mantra across the country was tough on crime. States passed tougher drug laws, three strikes policies, and mandatory minimums, while prosecuting more and more children as adults. Democrats and Republicans were largely in agreement on all this, and the United States incarceration rate became the highest in the world. Charlie was elected to the Delaware Senate in 2003, and he started to question these policies. Imagine you're driving in Wilmington, and you see a friend of yours, and he says, hey, Zach, can, can, can you give me a ride? Yeah, sure, get in. And he puts a seat back, and he's leaning back, and a dime bag slides out of his pocket and onto the floor behind his seat. So you don't even know there. You drop him off somewhere, you continue on, and you're going 25 mile an hour in a school zone. So a cop pulls you over for speeding and says, hey, do you mind if I look around your car? And you're like, sure, pff, what do I care, right? Finds a dime bag in the back. So now you were uh, subject to four minimum mandatory drug sentences of two years. Possession of a controlled substance in a school zone while operating a vehicle near a park. And because of that, they decide to go look in your house where in your closet you have stored in a gun safe your legally owned firearm. You now are in possession of a firearm while committing a drug felony. So they can throw a fifth minimum mandatory. So you could be subject to 10 years in jail because you gave your friend a ride. In this episode, we're going to explore the effect that laws like these have had on cities like Wilmington and on kids like Ricky. We're incarcerating and arresting significantly more people, but there's not really more crime happening. This is Kirsten Cornell from the Delaware Center for Justice. And what's most alarming about this increase in juvenile detentions is the disproportionate minority contact. 86% of youth overall that were in secure facilities were, were youth of color. That's Lisa Minutola, who's the Chief of Defense Services at the Delaware Public Defender's Office. Unfortunately, that's not the worst racial statistic that I've heard while making this show. In one study, it was found that 62% of black men in Wilmington were either incarcerated, on probation, or parole. 62%. From Short Order Production House at Wilmington Station, this is Remaking Murder Town, Episode 2, The Deep End. This program is brought to you with support from the Delaware Center for Justice. 
I always feel like if they've gotten to us, meaning if they've gotten to the public defender's office, it's almost too late because now they already have criminal charges pending against them or delinquency charges, as we call them. So they start out, they might be on a probation and then they're not successful on probation and they end up what we call into the, the, the deep end of the system. They're placed in basically secure jails um, like Ferris, which is the, the school for boys in Delaware. So I've been through every uh, juvenile detention center in, in Delaware. But the place Ricky Reyes spent most of his time was at Ferris. Okay, so walk me through what happens after you get arrested. You, you get arrested. I went to the detention center. I'm waiting for trial and things of that nature. How long do you wait there? Um, as long as they really want to be honest with you. If, if they know that you did something and they want you to do time for it, but they know that they don't really have a case against you, then they'll keep pushing it out. So oh, you really? can, so you you can you can wait you can wait you could be waiting up in 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 jail basically for up to a year. Really, or, year, yeah, year. A it was year. people. It was people in a, in a juvenile detention center that was sitting there for a year. So that means not only are you dealing with all the emotions that come with you being incarcerated. You know what I mean? You being told what to do. You being the nasty food. All that. Okay, yeah, you brought that upon yourself. Whatever, but. You're 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 dealing with not never knowing when you're getting out. That's the hard part. You know, it's when you don't know. You don't you don't have a date yet. You just imagine being locked up for a whole year and you don't even know when you're coming home. This is Ryan Tech Cooper from the ACLU. I asked him about why the racial disparity was so great. If you're poor or you're or you're brown, you're more likely to have contact with the police. And then once that contact starts, at every stage, having money is a get-out-of-jail card, and not having money is a stay-in-jail card. At the what ver- are those steps? So let's talk. So, so first is, you get arrested, you go to the police station. If you have money, you're saying, bring my lawyer in here. A public defender is not going to come to your arrest interview. That doesn't happen. Uh, your private lawyer might. And if your private lawyer comes, your private lawyer is going to tell you, invariably, stop talking to the police. Let's go home. Delaware is um, one of a few states that allows for youth to waive their right to counsel. It's really as simple as if you were to see this happen, it's, uh, you know, do you want an attorney or not? And the kids can just say, no, I don't need an attorney. Counsel is waived in about a third of all juvenile cases in Delaware. In Ricky's case, he always had a public defender. Public defenders are fantastic lawyers, generally speaking. They are, they're very qualified, very capable lawyers who have no time. And that means, you know, a, a defender who maybe meets with you before your preliminary hearing, maybe not. Um, you know, who, who in a complicated case might be able to hire some experts, might be able to file some motions, but in the run-of-the-mill case, probably not. You know, that, can make, that makes also all the difference in the world about whether you end up in prison or you end up free. And that's just a matter of how much money you have. I want to really quickly explain a legal concept that Lisa Mignotola conveyed to me in our interview. A public defender, even of a juvenile, a seven-year-old, is required by law to represent their client's expressed interests, which doesn't necessarily mean their best interests. This basically means that they have to do what the kid wants. So if a kid wants to do something that's going to hurt them, the best an attorney can do is try to convince them otherwise. You've worked with these kids. Like, how do you get through to these kids? Yeah, it's hard. How do you build a rapport and trust and a relationship with with this child? Um, so how do you? It, it's hard. I mean, a lot of it really takes spending a lot of time with that child. And unfortunately, we don't have the resources to do that. Ricky didn't have anything nice to say about his public defenders. 
public defenders. They just came out of law school. They just got an internship. They just they they they're, they're learning the judicial system on my case. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They on, on my case. So he's he's getting his feet wet. He or she's getting his feet wet on my case. This is just Ricky's opinion based on his experience. What it tells me is that of course a trusting relationship needs to be built between a client and an attorney. But this is especially the case when the client is a kid. Uh, okay, okay, so you waive your right to counsel or you have a public defender. What happens next? So then you get a bail set, right? And that's the most direct way that having money matters, right? I mean, if you get a $500 bail, if you're a middle-class person, you pay that bail, you get out, you go about your life, you don't lose your job, right? You probably don't lose your kids, and maybe you fight your charge. Well, if, you, if $500 is two months groceries and you, you just don't have that money to pay bail and you're sitting in jail, you have an entirely different calculus, the decision to refuse the plea that's offered to you is, is, is a much harder one. So like in the vast majority of cases, every time Ricky was charged with a crime, he took a plea bargain. Oh, I just wanted to get my time. I just wanted to get a date. That's it. And they know that that's all we're worried about. They're like, listen, you can either do 10 months if you plead to this charge, or you can take it to trial. You could possibly look at doing five years. That's all they say. That's all. So what are you going to do? Right, you just take the 10 months. I'm taking my 10 months. I'm a young black African-American the way that they viewing me. I have no chance to stand against what? The state of Delaware versus Enrique Reyes? You think I'm going to win? All I was worried about was living that life in there for two to five years. Nah. This is Isaac Dunn, who teaches a violence prevention class at Ferris. Isaac works very closely with kids when they get out. There's a young man that graduated out of Ferris. Not graduated, huh? Not that. He came out of Ferris, he was discharged, and I said, um, your brother's in prison in D.C., right? Federal custody. He was like, yeah. I'd like to see him. He was like, you think you could take me to D.C. to go see him? He hasn't seen his brother in two years. So Isaac dropped him off at the prison in D.C. in the morning, and in the afternoon he went back to pick him up to go to a Howard University football game. He gets in the car. He doesn't say anything. Jose, I'm like, what's going on? You didn't say anything. I've been in the car the last 10 minutes. He was like, my brother said there was over 200 people in his prison. He said there's only two toilets in there, two. And he saw somebody get stabbed in the face over a checker game. And he's like, I couldn't even touch him, Done. He was just like, I looked at him through a monitor. Like, it was kind of blurry, and he was just like, with this whole thing and this system and Ferris and probation, he was like, you can't, his exact words was, you can't beat this shit. This criminal justice system is a monster, man. Where we've gotten ourselves in trouble with the system that we've created is these kind of rigid structures. When we start treating youthful misbehavior as criminal behavior, we're creating people who are much more likely to become 
criminals. I do recall a case of, of a young girl who um, was charged with felonies of possession of a deadly weapon during commission of a felony and aggravated menacing. There had been, a, you know, a, some type of abuse in her life previously. And, you know, she obviously had some mental health issues, PTSD types of issues as a result of the trauma in her life and was having a dispute with her family. And her reaction to that dispute was to grab a knife out of the drawer and said, like, don't come near me, don't come near me. Um, and that became felony menacing? Yes, aggravated menacing, because aggravated menacing is when you menace somebody with um, a weapon. Um, and then possession of a deadly weapon, the knife, during commission of a felony, the felony being the aggravated menacing. This is Corey Wright again. He works with Isaac Dunn, mentoring kids in Ferris. Mothers had to tell their f- kids, you can't come live with me when you get out of Ferris because you got a felony. You can't, and I live in public housing. So where's the kid supposed to go? Like, yeah, where does he go? He goes to the block. But where does he stay? Couch here, couch there, couch there. And then guess who comes and get him? He violated probation because you don't have a steady address. So you set him up to fail. These policies are so out of touch with the reality of what the people are going to. With laws like these, it's easy to see how deeply ineffective our justice system has become. But on top of being ineffective, it's also really expensive. I'm sure you've heard before that it costs something like $40,000 a year to incarcerate an inmate. And that $40,000 a year is a huge underestimation of the cost. Uh, First of all, you've got the police force that you're paying for. And that's not in that number. Then you have children, youth, and families. That's not in that number. Uh, Health and social services, that's not in that number. Then throw into the fact that here you have a perfectly capable individual who could have a job somewhere that would be earning positive money rather than being a negative drain. So you add all that up together, that $40,000 we say is the cost of incarceration, is, it, it probably underestimates that by a factor of 10. I mean, it's probably $400,000 a year that it costs us to have somebody incarcerated. And with that kind of number, we ought to be doing a hell of a lot better than we're doing. Whenever I'm talking to anyone who's an advocate for something, one question I always ask is, why this cause? Why are you working on this? And on the cause of juvenile justice reform, Kirsten Cornell gave me a really simple answer. About two years ago, I sat in on um, our case manager, Isaac Dunn's swag class in Ferris. These are the kids that, they're the bad apples, they're the worst of the worst. And it was just astounding to sit in that classroom and see these kids, and they're, they're kids. <laughs> you know, it, it was a room full of, you know, 12 to 15 year old boys and they were nothing they were no different than any other room of 12 and 15 year old boys I think when we remind ourselves that these are kids that have gone through um, extensive trauma it's very easy to just focus on the worst thing that they've done um, rather than you know who they are as, as a whole person So when Ricky was 15, he was finishing up another stint at Ferris School. 
for attempted burglary? It was this one gentleman. I seen him in the front of the line. Seen this little boy in the front of the line. And now, you know, they telling me, Reyes, get back in line, get back in line. I'm walking up to him. Um, and I could see that he was, like, real scared. I, was, I just wasn't in the same state of mind that everybody else was in that, that morning. You know, I was in a whole a more deep thought, you know, at that moment. I asked him, I said, how old are you? And he said, I'm nine years old. That's when I knew right then and there, I said, I'm not coming back here. I'm not. That was something that, a personal feeling, you know, that I felt that changed my life. I said, I'm done with this life. Um, I've been robbing for how long, you know, and I'm still broke. I still have no way to be, it's, you can't become a man doing what I was doing. And I, were, I was hurting people. And then after that, I came home, got back on my AAU team, had a great game. Great game, you know, and that was on a Saturday. It was April 31st. My birthday was May 3rd. I got shot on May 16th. Tidal Wave, next time on Remaking Murder Town. Remaking Murder Town is brought to you with support from the Delaware Center for Justice. The show is created and edited by me, Zach Phillips, at Short Order Production House at Wilmington Station, with music by the incredible Jim Guthrie. The show is mixed by Peter Hoops. To find out how you can help, please visit dcjustice.org.